Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I'm pleased to announce that I finally, finally have all of my ducks in a row. Starting next week, I will be publishing something once per week on my website, chrisrawl.com, that hopefully will work in conjunction with this show that I'm doing twice a week. Now, how you are going to get this is either you need to be on the mailing list. If you've already done that, great. You can just fast forward for the next 30 seconds. If you have not, go to chrisrawl.com. In the top right-hand corner, there is a subscribe button. You give me your email address, and once per week, you will be getting something in your inbox that, again, will be about sports and will hopefully work in conjunction with this show. So go and do that, and next week, uh, sit back and prepare. Now I will go on to today's episode where I ask one question. How much should team success be factored into individual awards? Should team success be factored into individual awards? That is the question we are going to try and wade through today. I've been thinking about this for a very specific reason, because the NBA season is coming to a close. I watched Sixers versus Bucks a couple nights ago, which obviously featured Giannis against Embiid. And the NBA MVP race is about as hot as you could possibly get it involving those two people and Nikola Jokic from the Denver Nuggets. Three really incredible MVP candidates that are all in various ways deserving of winning the award. Now, I watched this game and it was awesome and both were really good. Giannis has the game-clinching block at the very end, which for some people was another thing to remember when we're trying to separate these three candidates that are just so tightly bunched together because of the incredible seasons that they're having. Now, all three of these players, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, they all have the raw totals that anybody can understand, your traditional statistics. You look at them, you just, your jaw drops down to the floor, your tongue rolls out of your mouth, you feel a little heat in your pants. It's one of those things. Joel Embiid, we're talking 30 points a game, 11 rebounds, four assists, over a steal, over a block, right around 50% from the field. Incredible season by your traditional standards. Nikola Jokic, same boat. 26 points a game, 13 and a half rebounds, eight assists, over a block, over a steal, almost 58% from the field. Again, incredible, incredible statistics. Giannis, same boat. 30 points a game, 11 and a half rebounds, six assists, over a block, over a steal, 55% from the field. Three players that, again, are at the peak of their powers and showing that every single night they step onto the court. Tightly bunched. Think of that, right? This MVP race, just neck and neck. And one night we think it's Jokic and the next we feel like it's Giannis. And then the next we feel like it's Embiid. And again, you can flush out cases for all of these players. I'm not here to tell you today who you think should be the MVP. That's, that's up to you. I, I want to examine more how we think about the MVP and what goes into that. By advanced stats, if that's your cup of tea, Nikola Jokic would probably be your MVP because he leads pretty much every category, especially all the major categories. Uh, player efficiency rating, PER, he leads the league. Win shares per 48 leads the league. Box score plus minus. VORP, value over placement player, all that kind of stuff. He's a league leader in every category. So the nerd community, they're going to skew more towards Jokic. The traditional old school basketball community, my guess is they're going to skew more towards a player like Embiid. And Giannis is kind of a hybrid there sitting between. 
where he pulls from both areas. Uh, but he has the the little added boost that the Bucks seem like they might be a little bit better team than the Nuggets or the Sixers. So that's where we start arriving at the discussion of today's show. The traditional statistics, the advanced stats, you can make up your own mind where you fall on all those things. I like both of them. I think they work in conjunction. Neither is the be-all, end-all. I think your eyes will tell you things that need to be factored. It's a really complex formula. And again, it varies person to person. So some people are going to love traditional stats. Some people hate them. Same with advanced stats. Go down the list. But the point is, this MVP race is incredibly tight by anybody's standards, no matter how you apply logic to determining the most valuable player in a league. So this week has been just a really big ongoing discussion across pretty much every major media outlet that covers this sport about the MVP race and who should be MVP and what should be going into that. So I've been reading a lot. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. And again, this spans all the major players, uh, ESPN, uh, The Ringer, CBS Sports, The Athletic. A lot of stuff that I've consumed have been about this very subject. And when a race is really tight, one of the things that you're going to have to do is start picking nits in a race between three players that are playing awesome and we can't get separation with raw totals or traditional statistics. Advanced stats, yeah, that's part of the story. They skew towards Jokic, but what else should we be factoring in? And a thing that I've heard again and again and again is if we're picking nits, team win-loss is going to be something that plays a role. And this is always a line of logic that I get lost in. It's not something that I adhere to as long-time listeners of this show No, but I think it's something that merits a lot of discussion continually. So I'm going to do that today. Because as we talk about these three teams, there are three teams who are roughly in the same category. The Bucs, they're 47 and 28 as of this recording. Um, That will probably change by a game by the time you listen to it. But as of this recording, they're 47 and 28. They're a half game out of first in the East. The Sixers, they're 46 and 29. They're a game back in Milwaukee. The Nuggets are 45 and 31. They are fifth in the West. They are 16 and a half games out of first in the West because the Phoenix Suns have taken the best record in the league and ran as far away as they can possibly run away. So that's where we're at. You see record-wise, again, three teams within the same category separated by a couple games. All pretty much have the same record. If you want to talk a little bit more about nuanced stuff that pertains to the MVP race, which again, I I would highly encourage everybody to do, especially in a race this close. It's not a cut and dry. We have a person that I think is leading the pack. And if you want to start picking nits and say, let's talk about environment, let's talk about situation. I'd say, great, let's do it. I think that's conducive to getting to a logical MVP candidate. Uh, In this instance, I would say it's going to help Jokic the most, in my opinion, because he's played the whole year without Jamal Murray. They've been missing Michael Porter Jr. for pretty much the entire year. Two next best players on the Nuggets. And still, this team has been incredibly competitive. A lot of that, the vast majority of that, should go towards Jokic. Kind of the sun that the solar system in Denver orbits around even when their second and third best players are not there. Now, Jokic's situation 
and how it is working in this case, just strictly in terms of the MVP race, how it works to his favor, it's reminiscent to me of the Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, NFL MVP debate. Because your traditional statistics people, they were all aboard the Tom Brady for MVP and last NFL MVP or last NFL season. They say he, it's easy. He led the league in passing yards. He led the league in passing touchdowns. I mean, what else do you want? He had significantly more of both of those than Aaron Rodgers. And the Aaron Rodgers crowd, which obviously I'm a part of, I go, well, let's talk about how those statistics are obtained. And let's talk about the environment and situation that Aaron Rodgers has been in this year. Uh, if you like team success, they have that. The Packers had the best record in the league. A lot of that stems from Rodgers. But again, that's not something that I care about as much. Some people do, and that's what helped out Rodgers. But what I cared about was Rodgers had one of the most efficient seasons of his career, a quarterback who is as efficient as any quarterback in the history of the league. He was the straw that stirred the drink for an offense that had four starters injured along the offensive line at various parts of the year, including their best offensive line lineman, David Bakhtiari, playing no meaningful games. He showed up for 20 snaps in a meaningless last game of the regular season against Detroit, did not play before, did not play in the playoff game, and missing their second best offensive lineman, Eldon Jenkins, for the vast majority of the season. It was just a game of musical chairs every single week. And Rodgers, alongside Matt LaFleur's game plan, that was the reason that the Packers had so much team success. And on an individual level, Rodgers was, again, as efficient as we've seen him play the quarterback position. So the raw totals didn't measure up to Brady's, but when you factor that in, you gained a greater understanding of why Aaron Rodgers had separation in the MVP race and why it was, relatively speaking, kind of a runaway. It made sense. But, but, for purposes of today's show and the examination of logic and what goes into deciding MVPs, I do think that the NFL MVP race is something to examine with a fine-tooth comb and the magnifying glass. And say, all right, let's, Let's change history a, a slight bit. Let's say the Packers only won 10 games last year instead of 13. Now, in this scenario, Aaron Rodgers plays the exact same as he did all year. His statistics are the exact same. Every play made is the exact same. We don't change anything except for three things that cost the Packers three games. And at that point, I would say, do you think that Aaron Rodgers wins the MVP if everything is equal yet the Buccaneers have a better record and the Packers are kind of scraping in as the worst divisional champ in the NFC. I would say no, because I think that team success has an outsized weight in a lot of people's minds, including voters or individual boards. But this is a really strange thought exercise because I say, all right, let's extend this slightly alternate reality a bit further. And I'll say, this is how Green Bay lost three games. I just went and plucked three that were close because Green Bay played a lot of them. First month of the season, they beat the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday night football on a game-winning field goal at the buzzer from Mason Crosby. Let's just say he misses. Pretty simple. Something that has nothing to do with Aaron Rodgers, nothing to do with anything except Crosby pushed it wide right. Let's say a game that the Packers end up beating the Baltimore Ravens by one in. A game that Baltimore goes for the go-ahead two-point conversion right at the end of regulation and does not get it. Packers defense holds. Let's say that just Tyler Huntley runs it in and the Packers lose. Let's say on Christmas Day, a game that the Packers squeaked out against the Cleveland Browns that Baker Mayfield throws four interceptions in. Let's say he doesn't throw that fourth interception when Cleveland has the ball at midfield right at the end of the game and they need 15 yards to get into field goal range. And if they do, they're going to kick a field goal and win. 
Instead, he throws a pick to Rasul Douglas. Let's just say makes a completion and Cleveland wins the game. Right there, that's three wins that swing against Green Bay that have nothing to do with Rodgers, that have nothing to do with that individual performance side. His efficiency, same. Position he's put the Packers in, same. Now, why I want to bring that up is because I would say, is this really what the MVP comes down to in a lot of people's minds? That team success can have this much of an impact on an MVP race. I find that to be very bizarre. Which brings us back to the NBA. And whenever I hear this talking point pushed around, that team success should directly affect an individual award, here are the reasons why. When I hear that, I don't get it. It's one thing if a team is 30 games below 500, you know? If a, if a player's playing on a 10 and 72 team, probably reasonable to assume that they couldn't be the MVP of the league. But in a race between three players that are this close, who are playing on three teams that are very similar in record, you're trying to tell me that the difference in the MVP race could come down to situation. I find that to be very bizarre because then you start expanding that understanding out. And I would say, so Nikola Jokic's MVP candidacy is going to come down to players like Monty Morris and Jeff Green and Boogie Cousins having a say in that. If they hit their wide open threes at the end of games and the Nuggets win, that's going to be a separator in the MVP race. If they come out and just barf all over themselves in the couple minutes a game that Jokic isn't on the court and the Nuggets lose, that's going to have a say. I find that bizarre. With Embiid, who is in a better situation, but still, I don't know how much you want to have James Harden attached to your championship aspirations right now. It seems bizarre to say just the simple fact of whether or not James Harden is going to try, whether or not he's going to continue to play basketball at 20 pounds overweight. That's going to have a say in Joel Embiid's MVP candidacy. Or that Giannis, who is in easily the best situation of these three, he's on the defending NBA champs. A lot of that goes to him. Obviously, he scored 50 points in the damn closeout game six against Phoenix, but it's a championship team with championship players, with a great number two and three with Middleton and Drew Holiday, a team that understands how to play defensive basketball, which you can definitely not say about the Nuggets. And Philadelphia waxes and wanes depending upon personnel. James Harden, again, is going to play a role in that. But Giannis has the best situation of the three. And within an MVP race this close, if you are applying team success logic to a more extended degree, then that is an advantage, which again, I get lost on. There's so many things within this particular discussion that it's just, it goes contrary to how I watch sports and what I think and what I value. And ignores, yes, the things that I'm always preaching. You can be an incredible player on a losing team. Yes, you can be a shitty player on an incredible team. All of these things. You could be the MVP on a team that is not as good as your other MVP candidates. That's very easy to do in my mind. Another thing that's been brought up this week because of the MVP discussion is I think media entities are feeling bad that the Suns are just kind of floating on the outside because, again, they're so far ahead of everyone else in the league. They're obliterated the West. They have run away with first place there. They've run away with first place in the league. They've cruised even as Chris Paul has been injured. Now he's back. So just the team that made the NBA Finals last year with another year of seasoning, they look like they could easily win the NBA title this year. 
And I don't know if it's because of that fact that people are saying, ah, we feel bad that we're talking about the Lakers every day and Giannis and Embiid and Jokic and just all these other various storylines, what Kyrie's doing on Instagram Live, who Kevin Durant's fighting with and DMs on Twitter, that kind of stuff. But Phoenix isn't necessarily getting the publicity that traditionally a team in their position would get. So this has led us to talk about, well, if we expand the MVP race, you know, there's a player who should be getting MVP consideration because he's been the best player on the best team, Devin Booker. Been durable. He's an incredible three-level scorer. When Chris Paul's been out, he's somehow morphed into this incredible point guard. He's getting a bunch of assists every game. I mean, very impressive season from Devin Booker. And as I've been consuming media, all right, let's expand this out. Why isn't Devin Booker being considered more? Not that he should win, but he should be considered. Which, first of all, I say, nobody gives a shit about consideration. Nobody cares. I don't even know what we're talking about. Second of all, nobody on planet Earth, including anybody who is talking about Devin Booker as an MVP consideration candidate, nobody's putting him in the same category as those three players, Jokic, Embiid, and Giannis this season. They are three players who are just on a different pedestal than everybody else in the league. They just are. Not a diss on anyone else, including Devin Booker. But I chuckle to myself as I hear this Devin Booker coverage because I say, this is incredibly funny and incredibly relevant that the same guy who was blasted not even three years ago for being a loser, for being part of Phoenix's perpetual losing problem, is now being pushed for MVP consideration by various media outlets because his team is easily the best in basketball during this regular season. I find that very interesting. Now, Devin Booker deserves a hell of a lot of kudos. He has gotten better in the last three years. I would say incrementally so. It's not been a jump from an eighth man on an NBA roster to the best player. But he has obviously played a vital role in Phoenix's success. That is undeniable. He's a great basketball player. That is undeniable. But where this logic gets murky and why I like to talk about it and point it out is because a lot of people, not a ton, but a decent amount, including myself, we thought these same things two years ago before the bubble, which was kind of the turning point for the Suns. They went in, they didn't lose a game, they barely missed out on the playoffs. That was pre-Paul, following offseason. They acquired Chris Paul, who was the gasoline on the fire that turned them into an NBA Finals team last season and now the best team in basketball through the regular season this year. But there are many people who, two years ago, said, Devin Booker, he's a great player. He's just maybe not in the best position to win. I'm not sitting there talking about him for MVP, when there was all NBA arguments and some people pissed on his candidacy because of his team success, I'd say, I don't, let's just, let's pump the brakes. Let's talk about it more as an individual award, which all NBA is, and less about it as, well, the Suns aren't very good. So how could Devin Booker be good? It's arcs of logic like this that make me hesitate when I hear certain players posited or discredited for individual awards based upon their team success. Why, when I'm listening to conversation about Embiid and Jokic and Giannis, I get a little bit wheezy when we get down the road and say, all right, this is a close race, which it is. But one of the things we are going to use to determine who should win the MVP is their environment, their surrounding. You expand the award discussion out a, a slight hair, and there's one more thing that I want to mention from this week in the NBA that follows this exact same road. It's LeBron's candidacy for All-NBA. And a lot of media members are incensed that LeBron could be even in consideration for All-NBA because the Los Angeles Lakers are an abomination. They are a 
atrocious basketball team that currently sits on the outside of the play-in picture. They are not even in the top 10 teams in the West. All these things are undeniable truths. But let's just, let's pause and say, okay, maybe it is possible to have a good or a great player on an abhorrent team. We have examples of that through all of time in every single sport. Who knew? And I'd say, let's do another thought exercise. If this is your line of logic, if this is something that would keep LeBron off of an all-NBA team, and I'm not saying first, I'm not saying second, just anywhere on first, second, or third team all-NBA. Seems pretty easy to understand if you watch basketball this year that LeBron should be on a all-NBA team. Where you want to put him, that's up to you, but very easy to understand. He should probably be amongst these 15 players chosen. But the thought exercise Let's take this exact version of LeBron right now that we have in the 2022 season, but let's play him with the supporting cast from two years ago. Right now in 2022, LeBron's leading the league in scoring. He is not the nightly two-way force that he was 10 years ago in the midst of his prime. That's undeniable. He's not just going to take anyone and everyone and drag them to the best possible outcome for the team that he can. He's older. He takes games off because his knee is injured or his ankle is injured. That's life when you get older, even for a cyborg like LeBron. But if you give him the supporting cast from two years ago, you have this version, not the nightly two-way force, but still a man who's leading the league in scoring. And instead of relying on Russell Westbrook and Avery Bradley and Stanley Johnson and Wenyon Gabriel and Taylor Horton Tucker and all of these bums that he's been saddled with this year, let's say he's backed by the supporting cast that won an NBA championship two years ago especially a healthy Anthony Davis and a defense that was just completely suffocating. Role players who knew what they were doing, Caruso, KCP, Kyle Kuzma, just all the players that played a vital role alongside LeBron and Davis as they ran through the bubble and won the NBA title against the Heat. Let's say he's backed by that supporting cast and he's leading the league in scoring. And he doesn't have to be the nightly two-way force because his surroundings are greatly improved from what they currently are. What would be happening if that were the case? First of all, he'd be a lock for first team All-NBA, but I would extend it further. And I would say, I know how this stuff works. And I know the way that people think and talk and consume the NBA and apply logic. And I promise you, if this were the case, he would be an MVP conversation with Embiid and Jokic and Giannis. Everyone would go, this is one of, if not the best basketball player in the history of basketball. And he's almost 20 years into his career. And he's leading the league in scoring. And he's on the Lakers, who are one of the best teams in basketball and a championship contender. And he deserves to be mentioned alongside all these other three. That's just how this stuff works. And instead, many people are saying that they won't even put him on an all-NBA team this year because Westbrook is a clown and doesn't know how to make a jumper or do anything. Pay attention on defense for even seven seconds in a game because Anthony Davis is injured and continues to be so throughout his career because someone like on any given night, Wenyan Gabriel is his right-hand man, a dude who I didn't even know two months ago. I would love for somebody to explain to me how this makes sense. And yet, inevitably, I don't know if it's because of the way that groups think that listen to one another or just the way that media coverage affects people, that trickle-down effect. The vast majority of people use logic like this, which I just don't agree with. I don't think in very rare instances should team success ever be factored into an individual award, and it's only in the most extreme circumstances. I think it's relevant across the spectrum in pretty much everything. You know, the, the idea that situation matters, thing that I'm always preaching, basic commandment of the Chris Raw show. 
But I'm listening this week to my favorite NFL personality. Chris Sims works for NBC Sports. He's talking about the upcoming NFL draft and about the scouting process. And Chris Sims' evaluations, a lot of times they are very different from the group think that goes into NFL draft process and the way that everybody has the same mock draft, which is never matching up with A, how NFL teams draft, and more importantly, B, who ends up being good from any given draft year. You have your second round wide receiver that's the best in the draft. You have your third round quarterback like Russell Wilson. You have your fourth round tackle. You have a David Bakhtiari who turns into one of the best in the league. You never really know in this stuff. So understanding that's the case every year, you would say, well, if you are an evaluator who is good at your job and true to yourself, you might have really outlandish evaluations sometimes that do not match up to that groupthink portion. That everybody agrees these are the top five quarterbacks or wide receivers or whatever. So Chris Sims is talking about this. And as he's going over his evaluation of wide receivers, he's, you know, talking my top five, it's, it's going to be different from what most people have. And his track record in evaluation, I think kind of speaks for itself over the last however many years. And so he brings up two players specifically, Christian Watson from North Dakota state and Alec Pierce from Cincinnati, two players that a lot of people have not been talking about within just the top of the wide receiver pecking order. So he's talking about athleticism and just, the stuff that he values as an evaluator, explosion, that kind of stuff, which I agree with. I think it's logical in the NFL, a sport and wide receiver, a position especially that is built upon that kind of stuff. So he's answering questions about, well, why are these people ahead of players like Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson of Ohio State? Two players that pretty much everyone agrees is in the top five of most mock drafts or most evaluations for wide receivers. And Chris Sims had a really nice and interesting diatribe. And it's part of why I like him so much as a personality where he's going, look, I evaluated the film on these people. And yes, their production is not going to be anywhere near players like Olave or Wilson, but you got to understand these two players are blowing by people. They're getting in position to make big gains, to catch 50-yard passes, that kind of stuff. And they're kind of hamstrung by the situations that they are a part of. North Dakota State and Cincinnati, they didn't necessarily take advantage of these skill sets. And that's part of the evaluation process as we get closer to drafts. That's what everybody goes through. How do you separate a player in college from their situation. It's freaking hard because Tua Tagovailoa is going to look awesome when he's orchestrating Alabama's offense with an entire skill set and offensive line of NFL players. And you come to the NFL and you go, oh, maybe that's, maybe he's not as good as we thought there. You could have a player like Justin Herbert who doesn't look that impressive ever at Oregon playing with lesser players. And then you get him in the NFL and from the get-go, you go, holy shit, what is this guy? And how is he this good? And how did we all miss on that? But it's part of separating team from individual, whether that's in evaluation or a draft or whether that's in evaluation or these awards that come to stand as benchmarks for an entire season. MVP, all pro, all NBA, that kind of stuff. So I'll end today with a different sport. Bring another sport into the equation. Why the hell not? The NHL and the alternating pushback and support and pushback and support for Connor McDavid, who unequivocally is the best skater in hockey. This is his seventh year in the league. The Oilers have missed the playoffs outright three seasons in that span, three out of six complete seasons. Four, if the bubble never existed, where they expanded the playoff field and allowed bum teams like the Oilers to play a pre-first round series, which they did not win. They've won one playoff series with McDavid on their roster. The Oilers actually won one playoff series period since their, I believe it was 2006 Stanley Cup finals run, which speaks to kind of the incompetence of the franchise in general well before McDavid arrived and that has kind of extended with McDavid there on the roster. So within this stretch, he's won the Hart Trophy. 
the MVP of hockey twice, 2017, 2021. Every time he's winning it, every time he's involved, which is every year, because again, he's the best skater in hockey, the endless debate comes up. It's your nerd community usually on one side, your old school hockey people on the other side. And in the middle, it's how can the MVP not boost his team more? How could he be playing on teams that are this broke down? And I'll go, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to respond to this anymore if this is truly what you think. This is a sport that has four forward lines that consists of three skaters per line. It's a sport that has three defensive pairings consisting of two defenders per pairing and one of any three goalies on any given night that is there residing in your net. A lot of stuff goes into the hockey equation, much less the random luck and chance that a sport like this breeds. I would say go back earlier this week and watch a game like the Oilers played against the Calgary Flames where Edmonton loses nine to five and then come and talk to me about how virtually any of this has anything to do with Connor McDavid and especially the judgment that comes from a good player being on a bad team. So again, this is my opinion on it, but I think a lot of people agree. Connor McDavid has been the best player in hockey for the duration of his career. That has been simultaneous to Edmonton being a complete embarrassment that they are going to presumably make the playoffs this season, which I think they will. That is a testament to the combination of him and Leon Dreisaitl, who also has a Hart Trophy to his name, and they are two of the best players in hockey. They also reside on the same team. They also are the only two players worth even diddly shit on the Edmonton Oilers roster. Now, the case that I want to end today's shows with is the 2018 Hart Trophy voting. Again, that's the MVP of hockey. That year went to Taylor Hall, winger for the New Jersey Devils. It was a three-man race. Taylor Hall, Connor McDavid, Nathan McKinnon of my Colorado Avalanche. The year prior, McDavid had won the Hart Trophy. He led the league with 100 points in 82 games. In 2018, a little bit better. League leading 108 points, also in 82 games, including a league leading 35 goals scored at even strength. Really high-level stuff. Now, points aren't everything, but that's part of the picture, okay? The eye test overwhelmingly goes to McDavid with McKinnon being second on that list with Taylor Hall being third on that list. Now, Taylor Hall, by traditional metrics, great season, 93 points in 76 games. But he had the trump card, which was team success. He was on a Devils team that went from 70 points the prior season to 97 points in 2018. They end up losing in the first round of the playoffs while the Oilers sit at home, twiddling their thumbs. Now, we know in retrospect that team success was a complete aberration. The Devils were atrocious before. They immediately went back to being bad the following season. They had 72 points. They've not made the playoffs since. They've just been right at the bottom of the league, including this year. Taylor Hall, he gets traded a couple years later to the Coyotes. They don't do anything. He gets traded to the Boston Bruins, where he slowly drifted into being just a reasonable depth guy. You know, somebody you want on your roster, but you would never point out and say, this is going to move the needle for me in any way, shape, or form. Now, the person who, in my opinion, should have won the award that season was actually Nathan McKinnon. because. He had the best of all the worlds. He had the individual stuff. He had the team stuff. That season, he had 97 points in 74 games. More points than Hall and less games on a point-per-game basis. Pretty close to what McDavid was doing. He also spearheaded year one of the Avalanche's revival. They went from 48 points the year prior, easily the worst team in hockey, to 95 in 2018. It was the first year that we saw signs of life from Colorado that we now know to be this was step one, and the success was not an aberration. It, it was the first step towards a sustained movement of this team is good at hockey. We're going to try and get better every single year. We've seen that now. Now, I followed this race closely because of McKinnon's involvement. Favorite player on my favorite team. 
And I still vividly remember it this time. I understood the McDavid argument because I thought he was the best player in hockey. I was pining for McKinnon because he was my dude. And I'm saying, look, McKinnon's pretty much matched McDavid's production. He's also turned this bum-ass team, helped turn this bum-ass team into a team that I think is good and is going to be good moving forward. And a lot of that is stuff he can't control, but a lot of it is, it's stemming from him. But as this was going on, and we're all trying to juggle arguments, I remember team success was continually brought into it to the detriment of McDavid. And in the end, I honestly think that it was to the detriment of McKinnon. I think that Taylor Hall won the Hart Trophy that year because the Devils had two more points than Colorado. I honestly do believe that. I think when push came to shove, people said, much like this year in the NBA, ah, these are three really good candidates and we're going to pick some nits here and we're going to say team success has a role in this. McDavid, oh, missed the playoffs, out. Colorado, ooh, this is a sweet turnaround, but you had 95 points. Ooh, the Devils had 97. All right, we're going to give the award to McDavid, which I don't think was right at the time. I think history has proved that incredibly correct. But understanding this MVP race, I'll go back to where we started and say, think about this. Think about using that as a separator for an individual award, team success. Two-point difference between New Jersey and Colorado. Think about that over the course of an 82-game season as it is in both hockey and basketball. Think back to my Rodgers and Green Bay Packers example. Let's apply the same logic. You can flop three games in a heartbeat in an NFL season that have nothing to do with the individual in question. In hockey, oh, I mean, you could do that to the millionth degree. Puck bounces a post and goes in at the right time. You now have an extra win. Or if it's against you, you have an extra loss. The funkiness that goes into overtime, shootouts, just your general puck luck, team scoring against you with their goalie pole, you scoring with your goalie There's so many weird things that occur in hockey. Makes it incredibly fun to watch, but if you're trying to factor team success into an individual award, in my mind, it makes it kind of fruitless. It doesn't really make any sense. So if you understand that, you think about all of these examples spanning the NBA and the NFL and the NHL. End the show with a question that you, the listener, as you've heard my, my arguments, my thoughts, you can think about uh, and use it to just, you know, maybe get different thoughts percolating in your own mind or maybe say, I think Chris is wrong and I'm going to argue with him on these points. But let's end it with a question. How many of these things are allowed to affect MVP votes that have nothing to do with the player themselves? Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. Remember, I'll be writing starting next week on a weekly basis. If you want to get that delivered to your inbox, you need to go to chrisrawl.com. You need to click the subscribe button. You need to put your email address in there and I will send it to you once a week. I promise it will not be pornographic and I promise it will help enhance your understanding and hopefully your enjoyment of this show. Additional reminder, this podcast, it is produced by Weston Tanner. And a third reminder, if you can be so kind, please subscribe, please download, please rate and review and help spread the word. Thank you. I will talk to you next week.